You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. The big banks report blowout earnings, but is there trouble beneath the hood? Plus, Coinbase's $100 billion debut on the financial stage. For all this and more, I'm joined by Chris Whalen of Whalen Global Advisors. Chris, welcome to The Daily Briefing. How are you doing? My pleasure. How are you? All, all good here in Westchester County. <laughs> I'm doing really well, Chris, and I'm so glad that you joined us because you are an expert on the banks, and you really could not have picked a better day to come because we had a huge uh, release of earnings today from Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, as well as Wells Fargo. And the headline news, Chris, is that it was an absolute blowout. Your know, net income was much, much higher than analysts were expecting. Uh, do you agree with that narrative? No. I mean, the narrative is about being constructive. If you're not constructive, they don't put you on TV, which is why I haven't been on a certain network in a while. Um, the banks are basically taking income from last year that they had put aside for COVID for possible losses, and they're reporting it as income now. So that's good. The numbers are great. And under gap accounting, this is right. But the thing is, if you take JP Morgan and you take the reserve release out, their revenues were down year over year. You know, their earnings would have been down year over year. And nobody on Wall Street really gets past the first paragraph in the press release. So they don't bother with this stuff. Uh, the other key thing is that banks are continuing to see their assets run off. In other words, they're not originating new loans fast enough to keep up with the loans that are either being redeemed or prepaying early. A lot of early prepayments, especially in business loans, that kills banks. Because when they have to work harder to replace a loan that got paid off early, that just adds to their burden. It's so competitive now with all the big banks today to, to get quality assets. So a lot of them will just fold their hands and sit back. And that's why generally lending is falling. So, Chris, a year ago, the problem seemed to be insolvency, that people wouldn't pay down their credit cards, they wouldn't pay their mortgages, you'd have a huge insolvency problem. Now, it seems like the problem is that people have paid down too much debt, and banks can't find people to lend to. Is that true? Uh, partly, yes. I, I think the key thing to understand is last year, we all thought the world was going to end. We thought people were going to default and all the rest of it. So the banks put $60 billion aside, and now they're starting to take some of that back. This is not a credit crisis we're facing. This is a crisis of employment, of the bottom quarter of our working population that lost their jobs. These are not people with mortgages. They're not people typically with car loans or significant credit card debt. And so the consumer numbers look great. There is no problem. All the progressive uh, activists in Washington are unhappy because they don't have a crisis to solve. So where is the problem? It's in commercial. It's in commercial real estate, and we can't see it because the regulators are letting the banks forbear. They're letting the banks let these borrowers go in the hope that they come back because the bank doesn't want the building. The bank doesn't want the, the shopping mall, right? So they're giving these people time, but I think it's a mistake because especially in big cities, we're going to have to restructure this real estate. 
There's no way you could look at, you know, uh, 157 West 57th Street and say that it's worth the same as it was a year ago because the building's empty. That's the problem. The, the utilization of commercial assets has changed a lot, and we will have to figure out what they're worth. Chris, I want to get into the commercial story, but first, could you quickly uh, explain how banks book lost? How last year they booked losses as loan loss reserves, and then now they book it as profit uh, because they are yeah. taking out loan loss reserves. Well, it's Thank a little you. confusing. Um, the way banks work is they will typically try and predict what their losses are going to be, say, a year going forward, and they want to have enough money put aside that they actually take out of their gross revenue before they report profit to make sure they can handle that and a little more. So we have the expected loss and the unexpected loss piece, okay? What they did last year was we thought we would have big defaults like 2008. And so they put a big pile of money aside, but the defaults haven't materialized. Why? Well, in the consumer side, you had the CARES Act that was passed by Congress, basically allowed people not to pay. That's creating problems for landlords. It's creating problems for companies that service mortgages. But by and large, that problem is fixing itself. You can see it in the numbers. They're getting better every month. So the banks now have this big pile of money, but it's too much because under GAAP, the auditors have to make sure they don't put too much money aside because they might be sandbagging their earnings. So they might be understating their earnings, right? There's a, there's a whole debate over this, by the way, between the auditors and the regulators constantly. So now the banks get to pull some of that money back and treat it as profit today, even though that money was earned a year ago or more. So this year's earnings are basically being adjusted up almost to the same degree we adjusted them down last year to put aside the money. So. Welcome so, to the world of gap accounting. Yeah, yeah. The, is that mark to market, I guess? It's not mark to market so much as mark to future expectations of loss. Again, expected loss is what you reasonably expect. And then you always have a little bit thrown in there for what you don't expect, like Credit Suisse and Mr. Huang. Okay, oh, yeah. that's an unexpected loss. Although, honestly, were we surprised? No. <laughs> okay, so with those earnings that they can now book from taking from that kitty when once the losses didn't appear, that right. seems great because they can sort of, you know, they can really fly high. Um, however, you're saying they're kind of resting on their laurels and they're taking last year's money that didn't default and booking it as earnings. And That's but the right. future, you're not seeing a lot of strength in the future earning power. No, in fact, the street consensus for most of the top banks was flat to down, especially for revenue. And I think that's that's correct. I think banks are not going to be allowed to release too much more in terms of reserves because we don't know what's going to happen with their commercial exposures. Uh, on the consumer side, it's pretty benign. Um, I think they're going to normalize that. So for JP, they put aside about $20 billion. They'll probably get to bring half of that back into income, if not more. Uh, they may have guidance on their call that I haven't gotten a chance to look at. But basically, the consumer side of the ledger is okay. The really big question mark is businesses, you know, urban real estate, 
multifamily real estate, apartments that haven't had people paying their rent. All of these are going to be problematic. And then down the road, and I mean six months, 12 months down the road, not very far, we got to start thinking about municipal finance. Because all the money that Congress put on the table to help New York, help Chicago, and all, that's going to be gone very quickly. And then the question is, do we keep running the trains in New York if they're empty? Right? Metro North, that's very expensive. Those trains are empty. Uh, I live right by Scarborough train station on the Hudson Line. There's no cars in the parking lot. Okay? What's wrong with this picture? So, you know. Yeah. Chris, break down for us the exposure of the banks to commercial real estate as well as those municipal bonds. Well, banks... Uh, almost everything in a bank has real estate behind it one way or another. Uh, commercial loans typically are smaller companies, middle-sized companies that are owner-occupants of real estate. So they'll have their business, they'll have the payroll business that the bank does, and then the bank may also give them a mortgage for their premises. Those are situations that are going to be tough for the banks. They don't have huge commercial loans because those tend to go into REITs, and they also go into the market for what are called commercial mortgage-backed securities, which is about a half a trillion dollars. The REITs are about $5 trillion. And then the, the mortgage component of commercial loans in banks is maybe a trillion and a half. The total commercial book of, a, of the you know, of big banks today is about two and a half trillion dollars out of 20. So it's not an enormous piece, and it's roughly the same size as their exposure to residential real estate. But it's important because these loans actually make money. You know, residential loans are a loss leader for most banks because when they do the risk adjusted return, it's not that great. The best thing for a bank is credit cards. Uh, unsecured consumer loans, because those tend to have very high coupons in the teens and the low 20s. So Citi, for example, makes up for a lot of sins with their credit card book, but their their commercial book has horrible pricing. You know, they're a big bank and they're competing with all these other banks. And so what happens? They drop the coupon on those loans until they get the business. That's not a recipe for success. Because imagine Citi makes less than two points gross on their commercial loan book, You've got to subtract SG&A. You've got to subtract the cost of funds. What's left, right? You've got to take at least a point and a quarter out for SG&A, just the cost of running the bank. So, you know, it's a, it's a tough market now, and this is all because of the Fed. The Fed has created scarcity, and they have created an environment where even if rates go up a little bit, spreads don't expand. That's a and big worry. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Chris, I'm so glad you brought that up because you're talking about points. That really is the net interest margin, the difference between yep. uh, the rate at which banks can secure funding and the rate at which they lend. Uh, money and they really make money on uh, on that spread. Tell me why it is that as rates have risen, that hasn't necessarily helped that spread. Because you've seen the 30-year go up, and you've also seen financials go up. It's easy to sort of correlate the two. But we were speaking on the phone earlier. You were saying, you know, beneath the hood, it's a little bit more complicated. Well, the government bond market's part of it, but you got to remember that the loan market is a very different animal. The pricing there is is extremely competitive. 
Um, it's also tied to whether or not a business customer gives me their deposits, okay? So it's where do I get my funding and can I lend you money, right? That's how the bank looks at the world. So for, for most banks today, because their balance sheets have been expanded by the Fed, the Fed's sticking all this liquidity in, but the banks can't do much with it. This is short-term liquidity that rolls off in less than a year. So you can't use that money to fund a mortgage for you, Jack. You can't use that money to fund even a three to five year commercial loan. So the banks park it at the Fed. They do other things with it short term. But can they really make a lot of money on that? No. And so as the banks have grown, their earnings, return on earning assets, which is probably the most important thing you look at with any bank, has been falling. It's fallen 20 basis points in the last three years. So we're down to about 70 basis points. Uh, we haven't been there since the early 90s after the Volcker years at the Fed when he, he got rid of inflation. So this is a tough place for the banks. And I keep telling people, if the Fed doesn't change their policy by the end of this year, the banks are going to be in trouble. Chris, why is it that banks aren't taking as much risks as one would expect, given that we are in extremely loose monetary conditions. Your asset mm -hmm. purchases, $120 billion a month minimum. That just keeps on rolling in every single month. Uh, yep. Short-term rates are, are pinned at zero. Why wouldn't, like, let's say, a bank take a risk and lend to someone like me, where they say, OK, Jack, you, you may be young, just starting out in your career, but you know you do brush shoulders with with big players like Christopher Whalen. You, know, you, may, you may end up making something of yourself someday. We'll give you a mortgage. Why, why aren't banks taking that risk? Uh, banks are not allowed to do risk lending anymore. Uh, after 2008, the regulators in Congress basically neutered them. Wells Fargo is a great example. And so, no, they don't take risk. Uh, look at Brian Moynihan at Bank of America, the Bank of Brian, where we have destroyed tens of billions of dollars in shareholder value because he is basically afraid of risk. He, you know, when he bought Countrywide, he shut down their correspondent business. That was worth billions of dollars a year in revenue and income for the shareholders of Bank America. There was nothing wrong with that business, but Brian didn't like it. So, you know, you have a whole uh, generation of leaders in these banks that have been beaten up by Congress, beaten up by people like Kamala Harris, who made her political career in the national mortgage settlement in 2012. And so they don't take risk. You have to go to a non-bank lender to get a loan like that. Chris, okay? so... They, they aren't taking risks in the mortgage market, in those traditional uh, bank capital markets. But as you alluded to earlier, they are taking some risks in the uh, more high-flying sort of sexy businesses like investment banking, like trading, yeah. like private banking. Uh, you know, one thinks of, as you mentioned earlier, Bill Huang, where there definitely was a large amount of risk. So is it are banks sort of replacing the risk-taking that they would take in the normal in their loan book and sort of putting it into the investment banking and the trading businesses? Well, that's a good observation. And the answer partly is yes. Remember, the banks are running away from consumers. The consumer is toxic. So the only time a bank wants to face a consumer is if it's an affluent consumer, a bigger mortgage, you know, high FICO score, low LTV kind of loans, no risk. So where have they gone? Yeah, they still lend money to mortgage companies, even if they don't want to make mortgages themselves. So JP Morgan, for example, is a big warehouse lender all the independent investment banks. And those guys, by the way, have taken $2 trillion out of the $12 trillion total market away from the banks in the last four years. That's how much more efficient Penny Mac and Rocket are 
than your typical big bank. But yeah, you're right. They are now more dependent on capital markets and investment banking. They're more dependent on wholesale because they have gotten out of auto loans. They've gotten out of most residential mortgage loans. They'll still do commercial real estate, but a bank will typically sell a mortgage like that. They'll originate it and sell it. Um, so they pick and choose because they have to always look at Basel and see how much capital they have to put behind each kind of loan. But the reality is for a bank, you know, credit cards are a good business. Some commercial lending is a good business. Multifamily assets, okay, depending on where they're located. But you don't want to go anywhere near kind of the bottom half of consumers in terms of credit. You just don't because the regulators have told you not to. They have said no reputational risk. That means no consumers. So when everybody in Washington bemoans the fact that banks are leaving residential mortgages, they should just look in the mirror because they did this. The CFPB and the Congress, you know, they told banks not to take risk. So the consumer banking, the corporate lending, mortgage re lending and refinance, that has all those structural problems that you've mentioned. But I feel like a lot of that has been papered over by the eye-popping success of the trading businesses. I'm just looking at you know, Goldman Sachs results today of mm. investment banking fees, 3.7 billion just for the first quarter, global market, 7.5 billion. So you know, currencies, commodity trading, yeah. stock options, those call options. You know, but that's that their stock and trade. Well. I, I would be worried if Goldman wasn't making money, okay? This is the kind of market where they should be hitting it out of the park and God bless. But to me, I've always said Goldman needs to go merge with another bank. They need more deposits if they're going to survive long term. So yes, Solomon is doing what he does best. He's got the traders all cranked up and motivated. They stop feeding them, as you know, so they're very hungry. Uh, but at the same time, you got to remember that the other side of the house, the asset management is kind of eh. They make half the dollar that Morgan Stanley does in asset management, and they still aren't a very big bank. They really only have about a hundred billion in core deposits. So, to me, I'd like to see them merge with somebody who's got two hundred, maybe three hundred billion dollars in core deposits. I said U.S. Bank Corp. To me, that would be the category killer. If you had a real bank and then you had the investment banking know-how, Goldman. But the problem is, is that the regulators would want the bankers to run the business. <laughs> That's funny, Chris. So you talked about how the shrinking net interest margins is really uh, very you know, damaging to the bank's uh, earnings power. Talk to yeah. me about what you wrote about the poor visibility on expected credit losses. Are you, are you worried that they're marking their books down too much or too, too little when you say that? Uh, too little. I think with some exceptions, most banks have been um, giving forbearance to big commercial customers because they want to give them time. And that's fair enough. But we don't know as analysts, even looking at the public disclosure today, we don't really know what next year's credit losses are going to be because either through the CARES Act, through state law moratoria that have been put in place for both consumers and business, both, or simply because the bank doesn't want to foreclose on a big commercial customer, they're giving them time. Now, time is fine, but by the summer or the fall, you're going to be in a position where the auditors are going to force the banks to really start recognizing whether the assets are, are permanently impaired. And that's when I think we're going to have to come to Jesus in terms of credit costs. Chris, given everything that We've, you've been saying over this past 20 minutes, how would you evaluate 
the future of banks? Are you sanguine on the sector? You've been covering this for a long time. I know that you say that on a price to book ratio, they actually are attractive relative to a year ago, but their earnings power is, is very much in the air. What's your general outlook of the earnings power of the future, the prospects of, of the banking sector? Well, what I've said is that the banks are actually pretty expensive. I mean, in, in terms of share repurchases and dividends, you're getting less now than you were a year ago. So JP is almost back to where they were last February, around 1.7 times book, a little more. Um, and that's fairly valued given their earnings and their consistency. U.S. Bank is right behind them. Those are the two best in the top five. But is it cheap? Is it compelling? As an equity investor, no. You know, last time we had the big uh, uh, downdraft, I sold most of my common and I loaded up on bank preferreds because I wanted to be higher up the capital structure. I want to make sure my feet don't get wet in the next downturn. So, you know, right now I, I don't own any common other than uh, I own a little annually, which I bought at half a book value. Okay. That's that's my kind of compelling value. <laughs> okay, so so you're trading the preferreds, you're owning them. That's very interesting, Chris. Yeah. How do you? Uh, uh, what's your outlook on the big banks relative to the small banks? Because I know in your previous appearances on Real Vision, you've said that it really is the small banks, like uh, Western Alliance or yeah. uh, Bank right. of the Ozarks, that have that pricing power relative to the J.P. Morgans, which have to compete with like the sovereign fund, the sovereign wealth fund of Saudi Arabia. Um, well, that's right. Yeah, I mean. What we call peer group one is the top 125 banks in the U.S., anything above $10 billion in assets. By definition, the bottom half of that list grow faster and have better spreads and better profitability than the top half. It's just that that's a sweet spot for banks. You know, anywhere above $10 billion, you're starting to be significant in terms of the regulators, but you can still grow. You can still buy things. That is uh, not the case for the top banks. So I love BBT. I love some of the other big regionals because they're great banks, but they're all still better than the top five too. You know, U.S. Bank is, remember, they're the best performer in the top bank quarter after quarter, dollar for dollar capital and assets, better than J.P. Morgan. And yet they don't get any love from the street because of the size. The big buy side investors want huge liquidity. Chris, what did you make of Wells Fargo's earnings today? Because Goldman was buoyed by that huge trading revenue. Yes. Uh, JP Morgan had that um, you know enormous release of its reserves, which you know actually caused its net income to explode. But w w Wells Fargo, where would you place that? Well, they had been operating at a very very low level, so it was nice to see them get back up, you know, to the level you expect them. Um, it's, it's good to see a bounce, but I think the bank has still got a lot of work to do. They are under a cloud because of the mismanagement and the sanctions put in place by the Fed. And as long as the Democrats are in control of the Senate, I don't think the Fed is going to let them out of the penalty box. That's mm. what it comes down to. You know, uh, Powell would have to be ready to go head to head with Elizabeth Warren and uh, some of the other members of the Senate on this one. And, you know, again, the, the progressives don't care. They don't care about reality. They care about politics and and, and press uh, opportunities. So they'll go after Wells Fargo any chance they get. Uh, but, you know, the numbers were much better this time. I love the bank. The bank used to be the best performer in the in the large bank group. Uh, and for years and years, they just delivered. And But you see what happens when you stumble. Bank of the Ozarks had the same problem. That bank used to trade at two and a half times book. They had a very solid following in the equity community. Wells was the same way. Wells used to trade a higher valuation than J.P. Morgan. 
So, you know, the reputational risk is huge. It's, it's hard to quantify, but you can see it when you, when, you, when you run across it, can't you? Because these are two stocks now that have been punished for years. And yet Ozarks has been performing very well. You know, I love George. He, he's a great, great banker. Chris, could you break down how quantitative easing exactly impacts the, the earnings power of banks? Because there's the long end and then there's the short end. Let's say Powell were to raise the federal funds rate, which you know some uh, uh, the euro dollar, the interest rate op, uh, options market has sort of been pricing in. Um, as well, let's say that they they don't enact the the reflation spike that like really raises long term rates. What would happen if rates were to rise across the board? How would that impact banks' earnings power? The thing about quantitative easing, if you take it in a technical way, uh, the Fed is taking duration out of the market. Okay, and, and you can think of duration as another way of talking about bond risk or you know the ability of you, you, to buy an asset that pays you over time, right? When the Fed's doing that, they're making all of these assets more scarce, and they're forcing the prices up and the yields down. So by definition, the available return of what's left for a bank to buy is less. That's what it comes down to. Okay. Does it at the same time increase the value of what it already owns? Well, yes, in a sense that the you know you could sell an old loan with a higher coupon at a high price, or you could sell an old bond at a high price, but why would you do that? You want to hang on to that bond. You know, that's the thing. Investors today don't have a lot of risk-free assets to buy. The Fed has taken them all out of the market. So a, a crappy company that would have had to go into the high yield market and issue junk bonds five years ago can go out and raise money at investment grade spreads. So the banks are buying assets at the same return, but the credit is inferior. So in theory, they could take much bigger losses on this uh, paper. The Fed is actually embedding future losses in their portfolio that are priced like like uh, investment grade debt. That that's really what they're doing. That's very interesting, Chris. I feel um, I've been reading that as yields on the long end have been rising, that has increased the appetite for high yield because it has a shorter duration, as well as for bank loans and floating rate debt. So has that appetite for yield made it into the bank market. From what you're saying, it sounds like it, it really hasn't because the loan book is, is decreasing. No, no. The appetite for yields there, they just can't find assets. It's like people who want to buy a house. Right. The scarcity that you see in one to four family homes and the scarcity you see in the bond market is the same thing. And when Chair Powell gets up there and tells us the quantitative easing is not affecting home prices, that tells me he does not understand what he's doing. You know, I worry about the Fed. I worry about Janet Yellen at Treasury because these people are playing with a, a prayer book that's 30 years old and they don't really understand how much has changed in this market and how their manipulation of the market has destroyed price discovery, has destroyed risk metrics. We don't know what we've got here. And the only way we're going to find out is if the Fed ever stops buying. But I don't think they can. I think the Fed will be buying Treasury bonds forever. Let's get into that, Chris. How extreme do you think it can get? Do you think that the Fed would uh, uh, enact yield curve control? Because on the one hand, uh, a steep yield curve is a sign of the Federal Reserve's success in a way, because the market is pricing in growth, it's pricing in uh, you know re reflation and or inflation and, and growth. But on the other hand, you know one of the greatest components of uh, you know middle class wealth is 
is, is homeowners. And if, if yields get too high and that refinancing spigot sort of turns off, then that could really negatively, negatively impact housing. So what do you think uh, the, the Fed will do if yields continue to rise? Do you think that they'll enact yield curve control? No, I don't think they're that crazy. Um, <laughs> the Japanese have had very mixed experience with that, and their economy hasn't recovered. The bond market is the only part of the U.S. markets that's still working. I mean, the reason the U.S. recovered after 2008 and after last year is because our debt markets still work. And, and they are not government controlled. So if the Fed goes down that road, I would see that as a sign of, of capitulation on their part, that they're giving up. And it means that the economy is not going to grow very fast in the future. Because if we kill our bond market the way it is in Europe, for example, where they don't have a private bond market, they just have banks, then you have no growth. Because as we said before, the banks don't take risk. So if a businessman goes to a bank, the answer is no. You're not going to get a loan. So if you can't go to a non-bank lender who funds themselves in the bond market, then you're, you're out of luck. And that means this economy won't grow. And frankly, we would have a revolution in this country. You give that a couple of years, and we would be hanging Fed governors from lampposts on Constitution Avenue, which could happen anyway. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Oh, man. Well, so, yeah, the prospect of a flat yield curve is absolute kryptonite for bank earnings. That's what we've seen in Europe. Oh, yeah. The only yeah. thing worse, Chris, I can imagine, is a flat yield curve and serious inflation. Yesterday, we had a beat of the CPI, yes, only 2.6 year a year compared to 2.5, but technically still a beat. Obviously, that would negatively impact fixed income and loans and, and, and banks. What's your outlook? How big of a risk do you see inflation to the banks? Uh, in the near term, they would probably like a little inflation because it would help them with any credit losses they're facing. I mean, we, we've had inflation. The, the banking system has grown 50 percent since 2011. All right. I don't see how any Fed governor can go out in public and tell us that inflation is too low when we see home prices up 11 percent year over year and our banking system is growing at that rate. Because that, that's that's like a Latin American debtor in the 1970s. Come on. It's like Brazil, you know, and, and yet the Fed could get up and, and you know, go to see members of Congress who are obviously illiterate in economic terms um, and tell them everything is fine. You know, you never hear Chair Powell tell members of Congress that he's allowing banks to forbear on bad commercial debtors, right? But that's what they're doing. So the Fed is in a very dangerous place because they're responsible for a lot. And if they get called out on some of these things in the future by the wrong politician, I think they're in big trouble. You, you mentioned that housing has increased a ton and that, you know, how can you say yeah. there's no inflation? when housing prices are increasing so much. Uh, you know, as you know, Chris, uh, the, the housing CPI is divided into housing as an asset, which does not count because asset inflation is not accounting in the CPI, versus housing as a, as a uh, you know, something you, you use to live in, basically rental prices. So uh, yeah, I definitely think that that bifurcation can uh, do, do more to obfuscate than to clear things up. Well, look, affordable housing is a joke. Uh, the, the Fed has caused home prices to go up at a ridiculous rate. And so lower income families can't buy a home. They're going to be forced to rent. Congratulations, Mr. Powell. That's great. 
Um, you know, we've got to repeal Humphrey Hawkins is what it comes down to. That law is forcing the Fed to go through all of these gyrations in an attempt to hit the goal of full employment. Um, and they do it by, you know, manipulating and in some cases really damaging our markets and our banks. Uh, I don't think that's really what Congress intended. But frankly, the current cast of characters is such a joke that you couldn't even have this conversation with them. There's, I can count on the fingers of one hand members of Congress who actually understand finance and real estate and even monetary policy well enough that you could talk to them on camera. OK, the rest of them, forget about it. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, Chris, Chris, to uh, switch gears a little bit, Coinbase went public today via a direct listing. Yay. The, yeah, the price that uh, it started trading at, $250 in terms of market cap, that already was larger than ICE, the company that owns the uh, New York Stock Exchange. And perhaps, I don't know exactly where it's trading now, but if it's over $100 billion, it could be in the range of the Goldman Sachs. So what do you make of that direct listing of Coinbase? Well, it has a, a, a very strong story. There's a big crowd following it. Uh, I personally think that cryptocurrencies are a form of fraud. But, you know, these are consenting adults. If they want to play games, if they want to trade Beanie Babies, great. I think that's fine. To me, if you want to play crypto, Coinbase is kind of an interesting way to do it because these are smart guys. They have a, a, a public listing now. They have access to liquidity. But I don't pretend that there's any connection between the fundamentals of Coinbase and the stock price. You know, most stocks today are totally disconnected from reality. They, they are driven entirely by momentum because the same thing that the Fed's been doing in the bond market affects stocks. When you take duration out of the bond market, you're reducing the overall availability of investments for everybody. And so they're all forced to look at fewer and fewer assets of lower quality. So that's why we've had some of the cats and dogs that we've seen in the last year coming to the market. Some of them have done well, others haven't. But the point is you're able to bring inferior companies to market today that never even could have had the conversation. You know, Coinbase, could you have done this five years ago? No, but the hype around crypto, and I think also the concern about the existing system because of the policies we see coming from these, these vested, you know, uh, public servants we have, uh, that's what makes people look at alternatives like Coinbase. But, you know, God bless, I may go buy some just so I can follow it. Maybe I'll, I'll add it to my non-bank coverage list, right? Because <laughs> mortgage companies are done. I think the trade is sell the mortgage, buy the Coinbase. There you go. Chris, some have said that price discovery in traditional capital markets has been totally abrogated by the Federal Reserve and quantitative yep. easing. As such, decentralized finance and crypto is the only place where true pricing of money, true pricing of rates exists. What do you make of that argument when, you know, someone can earn 9, 10, 11% um, by, you know, via a stable coin, via decentralized finance? Uh, I think most of the coin schemes are not decentralized at all. They're very centralized. They're controlled by three people in North Korea, China. Uh, don't fool yourselves, guys. Anybody who's got access to free electricity can manipulate this market any way they want. All right. And, you know, unfortunately, the primary use of coin today is still to evade the public system, to evade money laundering laws and, and anti, uh, you know, anti-drug laws. So, you know, if you're going to swim in that pool, you got to realize there's all kinds of creatures swimming with you. And I just think that 
to my mind, the amount of time I've spent on crypto, it, it's not a decentralized alternative to central banks. You know, money is always a function of political entities. You can't take politics out of money. So anybody who makes that argument to you, you know that they're a child and that they don't get it. You know, countries with strong currencies have big armies and usually nuclear weapons. That's the way it works. That's really interesting, Chris. I, I think Bitcoin is poses a threat to the dollar, but if Bitcoin were to continue to ascend, I actually do think that there's a world in which uh, Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan and all these banks could coexist peacefully alongside Bitcoin. They'll just they'll trade the futures, they'll make up all sort of sort of products. But um, some people think that what what the actual the private banks, not the central banks, but the private banks, uh, the things that they are exposed to is things like decentralized finance. I know you think that all of these things now, Chris, are really, uh, I, I, you, I don't think you said garbage, but but you don't think very highly of them. Let's say you're right, Ethereum, Uniswap, let's say you're right that they really are frauds, don't offer a ton of value. Looking forward, Chris, how, how, uh, how do you assess the threat of something like that, that you think possibly could work, that could displace, let's say, a, you know, a hotshot Wall Street trader, instead of someone who's dressed the way I dress, um, and sort of you know, trading, making calls, making extremely fat fees, and all this banking. How how big of a risk do you see it? If, you know, some prodigy in Russia in his basement codes something that could out you know displace the bankers. How 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 do you discount that risk? Well, I think obviously it is a risk because that's what these are. These are games. The people who work at Goldman Sachs and the people who trade Bitcoin are the same. They just wear different clothing and they probably work in the basement. But that doesn't matter. Uh, the key point I make is that. Crypto is not an asset. It's not a store of value. Yes, it's a means of exchange. I have friends who live in Lebanon, for example. They don't have a government. So when you pay for stuff in Lebanon, using Bitcoin actually is quite convenient because you don't have a government. You have to pay for everything directly. So in those cases, you can see why a, a, an independent means of exchange is valuable, obviously, right? But is it going to supplant the big banks? No, because ultimately, governments force their citizens to use their money. The extreme example is China, where they want to have a electronic currency so they can monitor your activity. And if you misbehave politically, they'll take your money away. Okay, That's the point of the Chinese currency. It is entirely authoritarian. I would argue that most of the crypto schemes really structurally are authoritarian. They're not libertarian schemes. The only libertarian scheme is if you don't use money at all. Okay. Or if you have rocks on the beach, like they do in a certain Pacific island, then they said the rocks are money. We can exchange the rocks. You can't move the rocks, but they change uh, they change ownership, right? That's it. Uh, unless you want to get off the grid, if you're going to interact with the existing currency system, by definition, you're in an authoritarian system. I don't care if you're trading Bitcoin or U.S. dollars. It doesn't matter. The rest of this is all just marketing spiel, okay? If you really get down to the brass tacks, exchange of value, there's no difference. So much fascinating stuff that you said. I'm not even going to bring up the prospect of a digital dollar, which was alluded to in an interview with Jay Powell. We I have know. digital dollars. It's called PayPal. That's how I send my mother money. <laughs> fair, fair, but uh, the PayPal doesn't say, "Oh, this person is old and wealthy. We're gonna their their uh, interest rate is going to be negative two percent. This person's young and struggling. They're going to 
and get a 3% interest rate. So, that's right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. But, but okay, so my final question for you, Chris, it's been phenomenal having you on. I really enjoy interviewing you as I've enjoyed watching your interviews on, on Real Vision before. Uh, my question for you is, today we had JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs. Tomorrow and Friday, we have a slew of other big banks reporting. Bank of America, the, the, oh, the House of Brian, as you say, PNC Financial, um, City. What's, what's your outlook as, we, as investors embrace for the other earnings tomorrow and on Friday? Well, of all of those, uh, PNC is one of my favorites. Really strong regional, great franchise. You know, they have a mix of uh, both business and consumer banking there. City, you know, I, I, you never know what's going to happen at City. They don't have the strength of the investment bank at JP and, and Goldman, but they do have their consumer book. And, uh, you know, I, I think they'll have a decent quarter. Um, but I would say, again, as we discussed earlier, the smaller banks to me are more interesting. You know, if you're uh, an investor watching this uh, program, go look at Western Alliance. That is one of the best operating banks in the country, two and a half times book value. And they just bought one of the biggest aggregators of conventional loans from Apollo. Uh, Jim Forash and his team all worked at Countrywide. They know what they're doing. I, I think that bank is going to be very interesting. Very interesting stuff. Chris Wayland, thanks so much. Uh, where can people find you on Twitter and, and, and where you work? Uh, R.C. Whalen on Twitter and the Institutional Risk Analyst. We try and keep it fresh. Uh, we have fun. We cover the, the, the landscape of bank, non-bank, and occasionally fintech. So there you are. Thanks, Chris. Talk soon. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.